Now, again, we find his story, 2 Chronicles 28, 2 Kings 16, also Isaiah 7. Now, what's interesting is the life of Ahaz is bookended on either end, obviously by his uh, father and then by his uh, son. And he's bookended on either side by a godly king. Um, His father is Jotham, and his son is Hezekiah, the greatest king that will be in Judah since King David. Now, one thing I think is interesting here, in Jotham through Manasseh, you have every possible combination you can have of father and son. Jotham is a godly king. He has a terrible son named Ahaz. Ahaz is a terrible man. He has the most godly son since David to rule over Judah, Hezekiah. And then Hezekiah has a son who's the worst king that Judah ever had named Manasseh. Now think about that. A godly man, a wretched son, the greatest king uh, that that Judah has, and then followed by the very worst king that Judah ever has, a 55-year horrible reign. I don't know what all to read into that. And we say, well, why did these godly men have these ungodly sons and vice versa? Some of it may have been due to their mothers, the influence of the mothers in these, these families. But also, just because someone is a godly person doesn't necessarily mean that they transfer that uh, uh, to their children. So we, we see this mixture here. Now, the father of Ahaz is Jotham, and he's in Second Chronicles 27. I just want to read a couple things about him. Uh, notice chapter 27, verse 1. Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Notice these guys didn't really live to be that old, did they? It was only in his 40s when he dies. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Now, it mentions the mother oftentimes. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people continued acting corruptly. So he was a godly man, but his godliness didn't get transferred well to the people. But notice down in verse 5, he fought with the kings of the Ammonites and prevailed over them so that the Ammonites gave him during that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, 10,000s of barley. The Ammonites also paid him this amount in the second and the third year. So one of the things we see with Jotham is he obeys Yahweh, he he follows him, and he has blessing and prosperity. We're going to see the opposite with his son. Verse 6 is one of my favorite uh, verses in all the the, the stories about the kings in this study. Look at verse 6 of 2 Chronicles 27. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. You want to become mighty in life? You want to be prosperous? You want to be successful? Order your ways before the Lord. Then it goes on basically and gives uh, the record of his death. Godly king, nothing bad said about him. There wasn't any but in Jotham's life. Remember these other kings? He served the Lord, but he didn't get rid of the high places or whatever. Nothing like that stated about him. And then, of course, after Ahaz, we're going to have uh, King Hezekiah. Now, Ahaz here, the son of Jotham, is a wicked king. In fact, he's often called the Judas of Judah because he was a traitor to his nation. I mean, if you're interested in these kind of things, he, he starts reigning probably in 735 B.C., probably as a co-regent with his father. A lot of these kings, their, their reigns overlap because the, the father would kind of be sick or something for a while, and the son would be a co-regent, and then the father would die, and they would take over. 
So he probably starts reigning in 735, but his sole reign begins around 732, 731, and goes to 715. That's important because here in a minute what we're going to talk about is Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah when the northern kingdom is taken away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They're conquered, their city of Samaria is destroyed, and they're deported. So he's the king down south when, um, the, southern, when, the, when the northern kingdom gets taken away. Now, this man, this man Ahaz has a lot of opportunity, but he squanders it all. Matthew Henry said this about him, Never surely had a man greater opportunity of doing well than Ahaz had. Finding things in good posture, the kingdom is rich and strong and religion is established. And yet here we have him in these few verses, wickedly corrupt and debauched. He had a good education given him, a good example from his father. But parents cannot give grace to their children. All the instructions he had were lost upon him. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's what it says about him in verse, chapter 28, verse 1. Ahab was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do right in the sight of the Lord. And by the way, he's the only one of the kings that it says that about him that he didn't do right in the eyes of the Lord. About some of the other kings, it will say about them that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, but he's the only one that he didn't do right uh, in the sight of the Lord. Now, I've got four points you can see tonight in your outline. The first thing I want to do is just kind of look at his disobedience. Then I want to look at the the defeats uh, that he suffered. And again, there's a cause and effect to this. He's disobedient to Yahweh. One of the uh, disciplines that God had promised back in the covenant curses was nations are going to come in and overrun you. And then we'll see his departure spiritually from the Lord and then finally his death. Now, in in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 28, we have here what is nothing short of what I would call a wretched resume. I mean, it's it's a shocking list of covenant violations, violations of, of the Mosaic law. Notice verse 2, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's the the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's as if Judah has a king of Israel on the throne. And he made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Now, those of you who are just to Israel with us, with us, if you remember when you're driving around the southern part of the city, there's that steep valley down there, the valley, the Hinnom Valley. It's called the Valley of Hell oftentimes. Jesus used that term Gehenna, the Hinnom Valley. It's where garbage, there's a garbage dump of the city. Garbage was always burning there. He burned incense in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. And listen to this, he burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Now, this is the first occurrence in Judah of child sacrifice. It's not the last. Manasseh, his grandson, will do the same thing as well. This is forbidden in in the Torah, and of course it says here, he did it according to the abominations the nations whom the Lord had driven out had done. The implication here is God is going to drive Judah out of the land as well because they're doing the same things the Canaanites did that got them driven out of the land. That's the last thing you want to do is, you know, repeat the sins of the Canaanites that got them dispossessed of the land. Now, I don't want to be too graphic here tonight, but 
Think, imagine taking one of your children, let's say a son, binding him to an altar and cutting his throat with a knife and setting him on fire. That's what they did. When it says they burned him with fire, they offered him as a sacrifice. They would slit their throat and they'd tie him to an altar and they would burn him with fire. And notice it says here in 2 Kings 16, it says he burned his son with fire, but here in, in uh, Chronicles, it's plural. He burned incense and burned his sons in fire, according to the abominations of the nations here before him. I mean, you just recoil in revulsion at this when you read this here. This is the depths to which this man uh, has descended, this king of Judah. Now, because of this, there's a cause and there's an effect here. He's going to suffer a lot of military defeat. Now, a little bit about the background here. At this time, the two superpowers in the world are Assyria, which is to the north and the east of Israel, modern-day Iran, Iraq area, and then Egypt down to the south and the west of Israel. Of course, Israel's right in between. But what happens in this day, and I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail on this, but it's actually a pretty important uh, uh, time in Israel's history. It's called the Syro-Ephraimitic War, the Syro-Ephraimitic War. What you have is the, the Syro part is Syria, and the Ephraimitic part is Ephraim, or the northern kingdom of Israel. So Syria, which is up north of Israel, and the northern kingdom of Israel came together in a coalition to try to fight off the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the major power. They've got a powerful king named Tiglath-Pileser III. And so they're trying to fight them off. And they get the Philistines and the Edomites and some other smaller nations to help them. Because what would happen in that day, these major powers like Assyria, and they were the superpower really of the day, would come on the scene and try to overrun you and make you pay them tribute and money and all of that. So what, what would happen is some of these smaller nations would all come together to try to go fight them off. So Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel come together in a coalition, get the Philistines, the Edomites, some of these other nations to help, and they try to get Judah to help them out as well. But Ahaz doesn't want to be a part of this. And so what happens is Syria and Israel, these two powers north of him, they come down to try to conquer Judah so they can put one, a guy that's sympathetic to their cause on the throne who'll then help them against the Assyrians. So it's this Syro-Ephraimitic or Syro-Ephraimitic war that's taking place. It's around 734 uh, B.C. is what's taking place. Now notice in verse 5, Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. Now notice here, it's not the Syrians that defeated Ahaz, it's Yahweh. He delivered him into their hands. And they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. Again, that's the capital city of Syria. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who inflicted, uh, inflicted him with heavy casualties. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, because they'd forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. That's why it happened. Again, this isn't just bad luck. It, it's the discipline of God. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Maaseah, the king's son, and uh, Azrakam, the uh, king's house, Elkanah, the second to the king. And the sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 men, sons, and daughters, and took a great deal of spoil from them. Now, what we're going to see here in this is actually God is being gracious to Ahaz. 
I mean, when this guy starts offering his sons in the fire and the wicked things he's doing, God should have cut him off immediately. But note that God is gracious to him and God is merciful and God gives him opportunity to repent. And God even sends him what we might call a series of wake-up calls to get him to, uh, to flee to Yahweh and drive him to acknowledge his dependence on the Lord. So the Lord allows these two northern powers, Syria and, and North, the northern kingdom, to come in and win a battle over him and take a, a lot of his people away, his, his uh, uh, captives. And so that should have awakened him right there. Hey, you know, my dad was able to defeat these armies. Yahweh was with him, but I'm being defeated now. Maybe I need to turn to the Lord. So God chastened him with surrounding nations to wake him up. And again, it tells us clearly in these passages that God is the one who was responsible for these defeats. It wasn't the Syrians or the Philistines or the Edomites. Now, the second thing God does to kind of send him a wake-up call is God led the northern kingdom of Israel to be merciful to Ahaz. Look in uh, verse 8. The sons of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons and daughters, and took also a great deal of spoil and brought this spoil to Samaria. So Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But it says, a prophet of the Lord was there named Oded. And he went out to meet the army which came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he's delivered them into your hand. Now this guy knows what's going on. God delivered Judah into your hand, and you have slain them in a rage which has even reached heaven. And now you're proposing to subjugate for yourselves the people of Judah and Jerusalem for male and female slaves, may in return the captives whom you captured from your brothers, for the burning anger of the Lord is against you. And it, it talks about how the men of Israel, now this is the northern kingdom that's not but a decade away from being hauled off into to, uh, captivity. They actually return all these captives back to Judah. I don't have to do it. It says, uh, he says in verse 13, you must not bring captives in here for you're proposing to bring guilt upon us. So the armed men, verse 14, left the captives and the spoil before the officers in the assembly. The men who were designated by name took the captives, clothed them, their naked ones from the spoil, gave them clothes and sandals, fed them, gave them drink, anointed them with oil, led all their feeble ones on donkeys, and brought them to Jericho, the city of palm trees, to their brothers. Then they returned to Samaria. So they've defeated the southern kingdom, and they've taken all these captives, and this prophet comes up, and he tells them, look, send those people back. It was against uh, the, the law for Jews to enslave uh, their own people. And the, the, the northern kingdom listens and lets all of them go. So God led the northern kingdom to be merciful to Ahaz. So this was an unexpected goodness from God, but yet, but yet Ahaz fails to acknowledge God's hand in this. I mean, he fails to see the hand of God in what's happening. And again, God is doing this to drive him to, his, to acknowledge his need for help. Now, just a little aside here that's interesting. A lot of people believe that this incident is the basis for the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. Because it's the Samaritans here, the northern kingdom of Israel, their capital city is Samaria, and they're being good to their brothers there in the south. Because notice the, 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 the parallels. They took the captives, they clothed them, they gave them clothes and sandals, they fed them, they gave them drink, anointed them with oil, 
They put them on donkeys and brought them to Jericho. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, the man's on his way to, to Jericho, and he, put, he puts him on his donkey, and he takes care of him. So a lot of people think that Jesus used the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was his reference kind of for that, because the Samaritans here are, are blessing and being good to their neighbors to the south. They've just defeated in an army or in, in a battle. Now, a third blessing of God upon Ahaz is he sends him the prophet Isaiah. Now, for this, we're going to have to go back to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 7, or go over to the right to Isaiah 7. Now, I preached on this at, at uh, Christmas a couple years ago, so if you want to hear the whole uh, uh, exposition of this, you can go back and listen to that. But what you have here in Isaiah 7 is God sending the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to, uh, to cause him to turn to the Lord. Now, look at chapter 7 of Isaiah, the ver- first verse. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, that's the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, that's the king of the northern kingdom, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they couldn't conquer it. This is a, a, a later time, probably, or maybe a previous event than what we've just read where they did conquer Judah. Now, it was reported to the house of David, the Arameans of Campton Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as trees of the forest with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Yashuv. Now, it's interesting here, Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And his son Shir Yashuv means a remnant shall return. So he's got a, 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 a living reminders here of the faithfulness of the Lord. Yahweh is salvation, is Isaiah. And Shir Yashuv is a remnant shall, shall return. So he takes his little boy with him. And they go out and meet Ahaz. And Ahaz is out there uh, looking things over because he knows he's probably going to get attacked soon. He's looking over the waterworks and the pools of water and all this. And God says to Isaiah, say to Ahaz, In verse 4, take care and be calm and have no fear. And do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. So these guys are like a couple of cigarette butts. And on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aaron and the sons of Remaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, set up the sons of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Like I said earlier, they wanted to get rid of Ahaz and get a king that they could set up there who would join them and their, their uh, adventure, their, their ventures against Assyria. But he says, thus said the Lord God, it shall not stand nor come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it's no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So God's telling him, look, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of this situation for you. And then the Lord said, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Now notice Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask a sign from the Lord your God. Now, he's really not Ahaz's God, but I think he's telling him he can be your God if you'll listen to him. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God says you ask anything you want. It's a carte blanche. Because I think what God is doing here is he's saying, look, you ask for anything you want, and I'll do it for you, and that will be proof to you that I can handle this crisis you're facing. 
Now, in one of the most foolish statements of all time, Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, that sounds really spiritual. But the reason he doesn't take the Lord up on this, he's already been in contact with the Assyrians, with Tiglath-Pileser, making a deal with them to come down and help him. And he comes down and takes care of the northern kingdom and Syria. So he doesn't care. He's already made his alliance. He's leaning on the arm of the flesh. He's found his straw that he's going to lean on. And then he said, listen now, O house of David. Now notice God goes beyond Ahaz to the whole house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? That You'll try the patience of my God. Notice he didn't call him your God now. He says he's my God. Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. The you there is plural, by the way. It's not just Ahaz. It's the, it's the house of David. It's David's line. Behold, literally, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now think about this. The great prophecy of the virgin birth comes to this godless king. I mean, think of the mercy of God in this. He's saying, look, if, if you're not going to trust in me, I can raise up a king from a virgin. He'll eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse uh, evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Don't have time to go into this in detail, but I think here when he says that before the boy knows enough to refuse good and evil, I don't think the boy here is the virgin-born son that he's talking about. That's the Messiah. The boy is his little boy that he's got with him. I've often wondered when I read this passage, Isaiah goes down there to talk to King Ahaz, and it says he took his little boy, Shir Yashuv, with him. Why did he take his boy down there with him? Well, it's because later on what he's going to say is, before this boy is old enough to choose good or evil, the two kings whose land you dread will be forsaken. And of course, this is in 734 BC, this is happening. Um, Twelve years later, it's all over. Syria's been destroyed, the northern kingdom's been carried away. So I think that's where the boy comes in here. He says, for the boy will know enough to refuse good or choose evil. The land whose two kings you dread uh, will be forsaken. So the great prophecy of the virgin birth, I mean, this great 8th century prophet Isaiah, it comes in the midst of this apostasy and departure and disobedience from this king. But God says, you may not want a sign, but I'm going to give a sign to the whole uh, house of David. Someone said this years ago, this is a great quote, Ahaz thinks he can manage without God, but it's God who can manage without Ahaz. God doesn't need Ahaz. He doesn't need, any, he doesn't need you or me either, but we need him. But Ahaz doesn't see it. So God, God chastens him with these surrounding nations. He, he suffers defeats. Um, God leads the northern kingdom of Israel to be merciful and to return 200,000 captives. And then God sends Isaiah the prophet uh, to come to him. And then I think in the final wake-up call in 722 B.C., seven years before Ahaz reigns over, the Assyrians come and haul off the northern kingdom, destroy the city of Samaria, and deport the population of of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, to faraway places. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. It's the death of a kingdom. Turn back to, uh, to 2 Kings for just a moment, 17. Um, 
I know we're going to a lot of places here tonight. Maybe you can look some of these back up on your own, I hope. But 2 Kings 16 is the story of Ahaz, but 2 Kings 17 is the story of the northern kingdom being carried away. Um, Notice down in chapter 17, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried away Israel into exile to Assyria, settled them in Halah and Habor, uh, on the river uh, goes on and in the cities of the Medes. This is the obituary for the northern kingdom of Israel. And again, this happens on Ahaz's watch in the southern kingdom. Now, when you see that happen, you think the bells would start going off in your mind, I'm next. And the only hope I have is to turn uh, to Yahweh. Well, I read something this week. Sometimes, you know, I read things in books, and I'd say it's really good, and, and sometimes they're better than other statements, but this is really good. Uh, Roger Ellsworth, in his commentary on 2 Kings, here's the, the diagnosis he gives of the northern kingdom of Israel. Listen to these words. These sad verses report the death of the nation of Israel. The author functions here as a coroner. He conducts an autopsy on the lifeless body of Israel and hands down his official ruling. Israel's death was due to suicide. She did not have to die. She died because she chose to die. Israel did not die because of the Assyrians who invaded her land and carried her citizens into captivity. She was already dead before they arrived. They were merely the pallbearers who carried the body away. That's graphic, isn't it? The northern kingdom was already dead. And the Assyrians, all they did, all they served as is the pallbearers, just to come and carry the the, the corpse away. And Ahaz witnesses this. He sees what's going on. Now, go back again to, to Chronicles to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 28. Now notice here it says, um, down in verse 16, at that time Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. So he's going to go lean on their arm. For the Edomites had come to attack him. The Philistines are against him. And look at verse 19, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. And he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So the guy's relying on to help him. Actually, he just ends up afflicting him. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and cut out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. Now, verse 22 is one of the saddest verses we're going to read in this whole study of the kings. Now, in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. Now, you'd expect to read at this point in the story, Ahaz finally got it all through his thick head, and he humbled himself before the Lord, right? I mean, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Manasseh, as bad as he was, when he finally got humbled by the Lord, he actually turns to the Lord at the end of his life. But Ahaz won't do it. I mean, look at these words. In the time of his distress, notice the way the author says it, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. 
What he does here is he turns to Assyria even more and it takes him further from the Lord and it only serves to intensify his own wickedness. What's well, a tragic, tragic story. All of us, though, have known people like that, haven't we? I mean, you think, surely they've hit bottom by now. They just intensify in their, in their turning from the Lord. Well, verses 22 to 25, or uh, 22 to 25, now we have what's called the departure. Now, this is just another just tragic thing. Notice here it says, For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, and said, Because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. The story, if you go to 2 Kings and read the story, he goes up to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king. And when he's there, he sees an altar in Damascus where people there offered sacrifices. And it caught his attention. Evidently, it was beautiful or large or whatever it was. So when he gets back to Judah, he goes and gets rid of the brazen altar that God had commanded them to build and builds an altar like the one they have up in Damascus. And his reasoning is, Damascus defeated us, the Syrians did, so their God must be greater than Yahweh, so I'll worship him. But he didn't factor in the fact that um, the Syrians get wiped out by the Assyrians, (laughs) so God didn't help them much then when it came down to it. And again, we won't turn there, but in 2 Kings 16, there's a priest named Uriah who's mentioned five times. And when Ahaz is doing all this stuff in the temple. He's making all kinds of changes. In fact, finally at the end of his reign, the temple is closed down. They don't even go worship there anymore. The doors are shut. That's why when his son Hezekiah comes along, he has to open the doors. But there's a priest there named Uriah who gives no protest and does whatever Ahaz tells him. He takes no stand. And I was reminded of a story from B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, Once he met a woman named Mrs. Stevenson, who was wife of the president of Princeton Seminary. And he met her on a Princeton street. And she was worried about all the fireworks that might erupt at the upcoming Presbyterian General Assembly. And she said, Dr. Warfield, I hear there's going to be trouble at the General Assembly of the Presbyterians. Do let us pray for peace. To which Warfield said, I'm praying that if they do not do what is right, there may be a mighty battle. And that needs to be our attitude as well, not because we want conflict, but we fear spinelessness uh, that that shares in the sins of other people. And that's exactly what this man, uh, Uriah, does here. And and what I see in this, you know, Ahaz goes to another place and he sees their worship and it's attractive to him and he brings it back to Judah. And I see that today in many people who are trying to make Christianity more palatable and more appealing and more relevant and more pleasing. Uh, innovation and, you know, everything's progressive to make it more appealing to others. Uh, Several years ago, it's been many years ago now, a pastor here in town, I won't give his name, a lot of you'd probably know who who he is. He's a pastor of a liberal church, but I used to go work out at the Y, and I would see him up there, and we got acquainted a little bit, and one time I didn't see him for a while, I asked him where he'd been, and he told me he'd been over in Nepal studying with some monks and different people over there and all that. I'm kind of like, what, what'd, you do, you know, what'd, you, what'd you do that for? Kind of, you could see my perplexity. He said, well, you know, we can really learn a lot from them, whatever. I'm like, what, what do we need to learn from them? You know, we have, we, we're the ones who have the truth of the gospel, you know. I remember not long after that, I was talking to him again, and we were talking about something, and he was referring to me and himself, since we're both pastors. He said, well, you know, he says, after all, we're both on the same side. 
And I said, we're on the same side if, if you're preaching, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he didn't really talk to me a lot after that. I think he saw me as kind of, I was, was nice to him, but he was always trying to, to kind of, you know, make things more palatable and appealing, you know, these Eastern religions and kind of borrow some of what they're doing. By the way, it's interesting, he retired uh, from the church he was at, and when he retired, he divorced his wife and ran away with uh, a lady that either led the choir or someone in the choir or whatever it took place. Um, so he's an apostate. I mean, there's no doubt about that. He didn't believe the gospel. You know, I thought we could go learn from Buddhist monks and all these various things. Uh, but that's what, the way a lot of people are today, and it's the same thing we see here. You know, everything has to be innovation and progression. Here's the way one writer says it. He says, Ahaz was like many people today in post-Christian societies who were experimenting with Eastern religions, exotic spirituality. He says, ironically, at the same time, many in Asia have seen the spiritual and moral bankruptcy of these religions and are turning to Christ by the tens of thousands. Many are turning to these false religions because they've never known the power of real Christianity. Perhaps for a time, they've been exposed to caricatures of Christianity. We might mention churches which have embraced liberalism, which silences the Scriptures, replaces it with religious speculation or moralism, which obscures the free grace of God by the religion of good works or ritualism, which obscures the necessity of a personal relationship with God behind a cloud of external church formalities or sensationalism, which retreats into a religion of experiences and obscures the power of the truth to make sinners see their need for Christ. And that's what we have a lot of today, I think, is just kind of a watering down of things, and people see something here that's attractive, and they want to come and bring that in, and eventually what ends up happening is the gospel is watered down into nothing. In fact, if you, uh, if you go back into the, the passage in 2 Kings, again, which is our parallel passage, um, You'll notice that it spends a lot of time talking about what's, uh, what, what, what he's doing here with these uh, false altars and all these various things. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, made his sons pass through fire. It goes on and gives this lengthy discussion here of, uh, uh, of what he does. It says, the bronze altar which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. They had just gotten rid of it. And King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, uh, burn the morning burn offering and the evening meal offering. So he's got this new altar to do these things on. So he, he set aside, sets aside God's altar for something uh, that he finds more pleasing and more palatable. So again, we see a lot of this. You know, as you read these stories, you think about, okay, this was 2,700 years ago this is happening. It's the same kinds of things today. Now, we get finally in 2 Chronicles here to the end of this passage to, to his death. Um, notice in verse 26, Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and of Israel. So Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of Jer in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Which again, that's a, an indictment of him, a strong indictment of his, uh, of his rebellion. And then I, I, this is where we're going to leave off here this time. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. And you talk about a 180. We're going from Ahaz to his son, uh, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, again, is going to be the greatest king of Judah since David. 
And how in the world does Ahaz have a son like Hezekiah? And then how does Hezekiah have a son like Manasseh? There's a lot that's unwritten here in these passages for us. But uh, again, I think uh, a lot of this can be attributed to the mothers of these sons. And we all know the influence that mothers have upon their lives. Here's the way one person wrote about the death of Ahaz. This is powerful. He says, Ahaz had consistently looked in the wrong places for help. Now in death, when only God could deliver him, he had no one to help. He had no Savior to guide him through the valley of the shadow of death. He had grasped at straws all of his life, and in his death, he had nothing to cling to. His name means he grasped, but he went around in his whole life grasping at weak substitutes for Yahweh, and on every, uh, at every turn they failed him. But when he gets to the end of his life and he's, you know, basically everything he's grasped for has failed him, he still stubbornly refuses to turn uh, to the true God. And now you think about this, we have a far greater ally in the Lord than anything this world can ever offer us. God is our security. He's our resource. And you and I are to live in dependence upon Him. Uh, true to His name, Ahaz was a grasper, going around manipulating everything in life. He grasped at every substitute for God he could find. And of course, we want to be graspers too, but we want to be graspers for God. We want to be God graspers. We want to be clinging uh, to Him. I read a story a while back, and it, it, uh, it fits well with what we're talking about here tonight. It's from 9-11. It says this, it was just after 12.30 p.m. on September 12, 2001. The towers had fallen 27 hours earlier. Amazingly, Janelle McMillan was still alive. Although the 30-year-old Port Authority clerk had fallen from the 64th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, she'd survived. So she'd come down from the 64th floor with all this rubble. But what were her chances of being rescued from the 10 stories of smoking rubble in which she was entombed? Her head was squeezed between chunks of concrete while her legs were sandwiched by pieces of a stairway. Because her right leg was pinned under her leg, only her left hand was free. With that free hand, she reached in the darkness, hoping to find something to hold on to physically as well as emotionally. She's reaching out there just trying to grab something. But Janelle could not grasp anything. In the depths of despair and the smoking debris, she began to pray. I kept, she says, I kept my hand out there praying to God, show me a sign, show me a miracle, show me you're out there, show me you're listening to me. And the author says this, like many people who feel overwhelmed and have nowhere to turn, Janelle called out for, for help to a God she'd rejected earlier in her life. It says, not long after, someone grabbed her hand. A man's voice identified himself as Paul. Although Janelle tried to open her eyes, she couldn't. He reassured her she would be fine, encouraged her to hold on to his hand. According to a newspaper account, she grabbed his hand. She remembers he was not wearing gloves, unlike uh, the firefighter who found her. She also remembers he grabbed her hand with two hands. He was holding my hand for a long time, she says, and then the other workers came and pulled me out. And then the author closes with this, Janelle Guzman McMillan was the last person pulled alive from the collapsed towers. So here she is in a desperate condition, and that's a powerful statement. She called out to the God she'd rejected earlier in her life. 
She's got one hand out there, and she's reaching out there, calling out to God to help her. And God sent someone, obviously, to to lay hold of her and to grab hold of her hand. She kept her hand out there, calling to the Lord, and he was her only hope. And, And what I thought about as I read that is, Ahaz, as wicked and sinful as he was, if anywhere throughout this story, even at the end, If he'd have held out his hand like that and become a a God-grasper instead of grasping at straws and called out to the Lord and said, Lord, I need you, God would have laid hold of his hand and would have come and would have rescued him and delivered him. So it's a good thing to ask ourselves, what are we grasping for in life? What kind of substitutes are we grasping for all the time and and leaning upon that are going to end up being nothing but straws? It's a lot of things we grasp for in life, money. Uh, popularity, power, relationships, pleasure, um, security, whatever it may be. Look, it's a good thing to be a grasper. (laughs) Ahab's name means he grasps. It's a good thing to be a grasper if you're grasping for the right thing. And the only right thing ultimately in life that every one of us should be grasping for is a deeper knowledge, a deeper walk, a deeper relationship with the Lord. And we ought to call out to the Lord often and say, Lord, uh, you're the only one I have. I cling to you. Uh, help me and fill me and use me. And help me not to, to turn to, to weak substitutes in the arm of the flesh to lean upon and realize that my total dependence is upon you. Well, let's pray together. Father, we read this sobering story tonight of uh, the life of a man who died in stubborn rebellion against you, clinging and grasping for all the wrong things in life. And Father, we thank you that even in this sad story of Ahaz, we see this beautiful shining light of your mercy and your patience. Time and time again, you came to him and you disciplined him and sent prophets to him and let him see things that should have quickened him and awakened him to his need for you. But Father, we have to confess as we read this story tonight, sometimes we're stubborn like that as well. Father, I pray tonight if there's anyone here who's been grasping at straws in life, at weak substitutes for Yahweh, that they'd become a God grasper tonight, that they'd reach out that hand and they would call out to you and ask you, Father, to be their strength and their dependence and their security and their only resource. Oh, Father, help us in these times in which we live where there's so many things to tempt us, to draw us away from you, that we'd be God-graspers. Father, I pray for all of us here tonight that have children and grandchildren. As we look at this story, Father, it's sobering to see how godly people can have such ungodly children and grandchildren. Father, we know there's there's no magic formula to that, but Lord, we, we call out to you tonight to help us in whatever way we can, to be a godly example to our families, to our children and our grandchildren, so that they will see a a living incarnation of the truth of the gospel in our lives. It will be attractive to them, and that you can use that to draw them to faith in yourself. So, Father, help us tonight. Encourage us. Strengthen us. May we leave here tonight depending and trusting only in you for whatever we face in life. We ask these things in Jesus' name.